1: You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas public affairs show. I'm Heather Vale, and joining me today is Sean Maddox, founder of Black Pearl Promotions. National nonprofit Awareness Day is coming up and Black Pearl Promotions is hosting an event to bring awareness to the nonprofits in our own community. They also have another upcoming event to support two important causes that touch nearly all of our lives. Sean, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Heather.
1: So, before we talk about the upcoming nonprofit events and fundraisers, what else does Black Pearl Promotions do?
0: Well, the key focus is promoting amazing events. Uh, I sort of shifted last year into wanting to focus on events that help support local organizations that are doing work in the community. That's one of the mission statements of Black Pearl Promotions, as well as uh, help. If the goal is to help other. Organizations and promoters promote their events, but also to be able to uh, put together events that are going to benefit the community as well.
1: Okay, awesome. So tell us more about the upcoming Nevada Nonprofit Awareness Community event that's happening on August 17th.
0: Okay, absolutely. So, as you mentioned earlier, August 17th every single year is uh, National Nonprofit Awareness Day, and it's basically an opportunity to shift a little bit of the focus on the nonprofits in the community that are doing tremendous work in the community and providing services to members of the community. Uh, Last year was actually our first year doing the event. And as you may know, during that time, it was a pandemic. And we just wanted to really focus on getting the community out to see what nonprofits were available and what services were available to them. There's Literally, in every no matter what area you're in, there's hundreds and hundreds of nonprofits uh, that are doing tremendous work in every community. Most people know about the larger nonprofits, but there's so many nonprofits out there, Heather, the smaller ones that really don't get recognition. They don't get uh, the attention that they deserve, and they're still providing amazing services to the community. So one of the goals of this event is to really help bring awareness, not just to the bigger nonprofits, but also the smaller ones that are really making a difference to people.
1: What sorts of focuses do the nonprofits have that are taking part? Is it like, you know, the full spectrum or is it focused in one particular area or a series of areas?
0: Well, it's a bunch of different areas. So there's nonprofits that focus strictly on children and, and, and helping teens. There's nonprofits that are helping people as far as for homelessness. Uh, there's nonprofits that are helping people who may be going through a crisis in their life. So it's, it's literally all types of nonprofits that have signed up to participate in this event. I think one of the biggest things that we've heard from last year's event was that uh, from the nonprofits was that it gave them such an opportunity to be able to meet people from the community who uh, eventually Uh, could become future donors, future volunteers, future sponsors. And it's also a great opportunity for the nonprofits to come connect with business owners in the community as well and partner with them.
1: Okay. So presumably last year, you know, as you mentioned, being the pandemic, there was probably, I'm assuming, you know, maybe less participants than what might happen in a normal year. So... What was the turnout like last year, both the exhibitors, the nonprofits, and the people? And what are you expecting this year in comparison?
0: Yes, absolutely. So we had uh, we were at capacity for last year's event. Uh, we didn't know what the turnout was going to be because it was a pandemic. Uh, so we, we had it in a limited size venue. The event was graciously hosted by Emerald at Queens Ridge. We really thank the owner for wanting to step up and, and help us with this event. Uh, We ended up having maybe about, I'd say, 70 nonprofits that signed up uh, and ended up having maybe about 60 that were able to show up, but some weren't able to do it because of the pandemic and protocol. And we ended up having throughout the entire event, probably roughly a couple of hundred people, community uh, members who came through throughout the evening to meet and greet with the nonprofits. During that time, and that was for last year during the pandemic. This year, being hosted at the the library, the Sahara West Library, we're expecting anywhere probably between four to six hundred people throughout the day to come through. Probably a lot more than that, uh, as we're building up traction. And we have currently uh, space for about seventy to seventy-five nonprofits uh, who are going to be um, having a table at the event and be able to uh, meet with the uh, local community to kind of share with the community what it is that they do.
1: Okay, so besides going to the different tables, what will people experience when they come to the event as an attendee?
0: So one, one of the things we wanted to do for the event is we wanted to make it a community event, a fun event, and especially a family event. So one of the things we're gonna have is giveaways and prizes throughout the day uh, for people to experience. Also, one of the things uh, we're going to have is entertainment. So, what we're, we're doing is we're working on uh, providing different types of entertainment to the people who attend the event. And a lot of that entertainment we're expecting to be from actual local nonprofits who are also going to be uh, providing that type of entertainment for them. It, but it's more so about, it's just really to showcase what the nonprofits can do and what they're doing in the community as far as with the prize, the entertainment is concerned. But other than that, one of the things they can also expect is to really be able to connect with the nonprofits. So we have a lot of people who have big hearts who want to be involved in their community, but they may not know all of the resources that are available in their community. So it's going to be a wonderful time for them to come out and connect with these nonprofits, find out what they're all about, and possibly even become volunteers or even future donors uh, of these nonprofits. I wanted to also point out, there's a lot of people out there who also have aspirations of starting their own nonprofit. So we will also have resources at the event to help people who who do have a desire to start a nonprofit, an opportunity to come and, and, and link up with resources uh, free resources that will allow them to be able to start and set up their own nonprofit as well.
1: Wow, that's great! What kind of resources are there that people can tap into if they want to start their own nonprofit?
0: Well, first of all, SCORE, which I found out uh, some time ago—not well, not long ago—that SCORE provides uh, free resources as well for nonprofits, and I didn't know that until recently. So there's uh, resources out there that will help people uh, not only set up their entity, but also uh, free resources as far as being able to run the entity. And, and the most important part about it is setting it up the right way so that it runs efficiently and effectively. And th- that's the best resources for people because a lot of people have no clue as to where to start and where to begin. So that's one of the things we wanted to provide to people as well at the event.
1: Okay, and then I think you mentioned you have a pre-event seminar for the nonprofit participants who want to learn stuff? What are you teaching at the pre-event seminar?
0: Right. So we are going to have a pre-event seminar prior to that and it's going to be specifically for nonprofits. So okay. uh, basically prior to the event, which starts at for the community at four o'clock, but prior to that, uh, around 1.30, we're going to have an educational conference for the nonprofits. We have a, a couple of different speakers who will be coming and talking about. Uh, one of the topics is uh, creating successful partnerships uh, between businesses and nonprofits. Uh, that's going to be uh, done by Linda Lisakowski, and uh, she's one of the speakers with over 25 years of successful fundraising experience. Uh, we also have uh, Melanie Bash. Uh, who's the co-founder of Leverage LV, and she's going to be uh, talking about the topic of bringing uh, your nonprofit to the next level by enhancing uh, fundraising events and programs to increase revenue. We also have uh, Magali Devalos. Uh, she is the uh, community relationship uh, relations manager at Allegiant Stadium, and she's going to be talking about how Allegiant Stadium can help nonprofits raise more funds. And uh, I will also be talking from a marketing background I will be talking to the nonprofits about uh, how to leverage online ads to stay on uh, top of mind with potential donors and increase their donations. Uh, So we just wanted to we added this is something new that we added that we did not have last year to really be a benefit to the nonprofits and not just the community uh, itself.
1: Yeah it sounds like a lot of value for the nonprofits that are taking part so what do they need to do in order to sign up and have a table and take part in the seminar
0: right so as far as the nonprofits are concerned it's absolutely free for them to participate as long as we have space i don't have a final number of what we have but i do know we're probably about 85% at the time of of this interview full as far as the nonprofits go but they can go right to the website, which is with an s.com, and they can click on Upcoming Events and click on the Nonprofit Awareness Day event. And right on that page will be a link for uh, the nonprofits to be able to uh, sign up their nonprofit. And I want to encourage nonprofits, even if they're not able to participate and have a table this year uh, because of um, uh, limited space. I want to still encourage the nonprofits to still register as a participant as far as coming out to the event because it'll still be an opportunity for them to come out uh connect uh with other resources that can benefit their nonprofit and also connect with uh, the community as well while they're there
1: yeah awesome so just to recap they don't have to pay for the table they don't have to pay for the seminar they don't have to pay for anything
0: Correct. It's an absolute 100% free event for the nonprofit. It's absolutely 100% free for the community to come and participate. And they can go directly to the website as well, www.blackpearlpromotions.com, where they can uh, register for the event. Even though it's a free event, we're asking that they do register for the event, but it's absolutely 100% free for the community and for the nonprofits to take advantage.
1: Wow. That's incredible. Okay. And then you've got another event coming up in October, the Bring Back the 70s Disco event. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Yes, absolutely. So as many people may already be aware of, October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and it's also National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So uh, for the last several years, I've really been trying to put together, I wanted to put together an event that was going to help raise awareness, for these two causes, but also to be able to help support these causes by helping to raise money for them. Um, But with the pandemic, unfortunately, it did not leave an opportunity to do it on a scale that I really wanted to. We were determined to to make something happen this year. And so we're putting together a fun event. It's, as you mentioned, the Bring Back the 70s disco fundraiser event. And it's going to be an opportunity for people to come out If they want to put on their best 70s disco attire, uh, it's not required, but it's encouraged. And we're just going to have an amazing time during this event. But more importantly than just having amazing time dancing to the 70s and enjoying uh, the event is we want to help also raise awareness for domestic violence and, and help raise awareness for breast cancer.
1: Why did you choose to support those causes, both domestic violence and breast cancer?
0: Well, one of the reasons why it's super important to me is my wife is a survivor of domestic violence. Prior to our relationship, she was in a 12-year relationship, which was just horrific. And uh, that's why that that particular cause is, is important to me. Uh, as far as breast cancer awareness is concerned, I, I had a grandmother who had breast cancer. Uh, she's no longer with me now. But uh, that's one of the, the key reasons why both of these are so important. And just really want to bring awareness to both of these causes because it's it's something that's super important to bring awareness to.
1: Yeah, and I think most of us are touched in some way by... One or both of those causes because they're a lot more prevalent, unfortunately, than what they should be. So, you know, that's fantastic.
0: Yes. And uh, just really quickly to kind of go over some really quick statistics, and I'm reading this uh, off our page, but on average, nearly a lot of people may not realize this, but on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States during one year. And this equates to more than 10 million women and men and one in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence. And uh, it, it's not just physical either. It could be uh, emotional uh, abuse as well. And as far as breast cancer statistics are concerned, according to the National Breast Cancer Foundation, one in eight women in the United States will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. So we want to encourage people to uh, during the event, we want to encourage people to really acknowledge and be aware of these two causes. Uh, You may you know, there may be somebody in your family, there may be somebody in your sphere of influence or in your network who is who may be going through domestic violence. And they may not have a way or that they feel there's a way to let somebody know. And we just want to really encourage people to do that. We're going to be partnering with some local agencies, uh, for example, like Safe Nest, as well as a couple other agencies during uh, this event to really help 10x the awareness for the community for these two amazing causes. So we're really hoping that people can come out support the event. Uh, even if you cannot come to the event personally, uh, we're still going to have a link on the webpage where they can donate either money or donate their time to these causes, to the local agencies that are working in these two areas. And they can go to the same website, www.blackpearlpromotions.com, click on upcoming events uh, to get more information and to be a part of these two events. Even if it's just being a volunteer and helping out during the event, everything helps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if they go to the website, can they also find out more information about Black Pearl in general and some of the other things that you do?
0: Absolutely. Uh, just going to the website, uh, we have more information about what we're doing, what uh, our vision is, what are some of our goals are for the future. Ultimately, you know, for these events, we want to have, we want to multiply it and and we want to sell out a stadium. We want to sell out a, a large venue for these events, especially for our fundraiser event. Um, but for this year, our goal is just to really reach as many people as possible and really uh, have an impact on the organizations uh, that are Part of these two amazing events.
1: Awesome. So again, it's blackpearlpromotions.com, blackpearlpromotions.com. There's two events listed there. The first one is the 2022 Nevada Nonprofit Awareness Day Community Event. That's happening on Wednesday, August 17th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Sahara West Library and then in october it's bring back the 70s disco fundraising event to support domestic violence awareness month and breast cancer awareness month that's happening on friday october 28th from 8 p.m to midnight at starbase lv blackpearlpromotions.com again is the website Sean, thank you so much for being here and talking to us about this. I mean, these are some amazing events you've got going on. The fact that they give so much value to the nonprofits who are really making a difference in our community. I think it's absolutely amazing what you're doing. And I encourage everybody to go check out the website and hopefully take part in one or both of these events.
0: The Bring Back the 70 Disco fundraiser, a portion of the net ticket sales are going to support. Local organizations that work within uh, domestic violence and that work within the breast cancer or cancer awareness as well. But the Nevada nonprofit awareness day event, which is August seventeenth, that is one hundred percent free.
1: Yeah, and the disco fundraising event. I took a peek. It looks like tickets are only like twenty five bucks.
0: Absolutely, and we're gonna have a a DJ there that's gonna be playing some of the best seventies disco music, and as well as probably a a little segment of uh, a live segment during that short time. Uh, of a a live band doing something as far as with the 70s disco. So we're working on getting the entertainment for that. um, But we're really excited about that event. And we're we're also going to be doing uh, a contest for the best 70s outfit and the best 70s dancer. So as I said, we really want (laughs) to encourage people to come out and have a great time and help us raise awareness for these two causes.
1: Yeah, that sounds like so much fun. Okay, so once again, all the information, tickets for both. Now, the Nonprofit Awareness Day community event doesn't cost anything, but you do still need to sign up in advance. So you can sign up for both of them at blackpearlpromotions.com. So we've got the one in August coming up, the Nonprofit Awareness Day community event, and then in October, the disco fundraising event. So, again, Sean, thank you so much for letting people know about these events. And, you know, maybe we have to have you back on just before the disco one and remind everybody.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on the show.
1: All right. Awesome. Thank you. Cancer can feel like something we can't do anything about. But you can.
2: There are screening tests that can catch cancer early when it may be easier to treat. Begin cervical screening at age 25. At 45, start colorectal and breast screening. At 50, discuss lung screening with a doctor. Find resources for free and low-cost screening at cancer.org getscreened get screened.
1: This is a public service message from the American Cancer Society. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs show. Today I'm speaking with Kelly Willis, Managing Director of Strategic Initiatives for Malaria No More. Malaria No More is working towards a world where no one dies from a mosquito bite. In 2020, they launched Forecasting Healthy Futures, an initiative where a group of health, technology, and public sector partners support governments in climate-proofing their efforts to eliminate malaria. Kelly has more than 20 years of experience working in infectious disease and global health and is responsible for overseeing and growing the organization's programs and partnerships around the world. Kelly, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Heather. It's nice to be here. Can you give us a little bit of background on Malaria No More? When was it originally founded?
2: Just last year, we celebrated our 15-year anniversary. So we were founded at the same time as the United States President's Malaria Initiative was launched. PMI, as we call it, is a a major investment by the U.S. government uh, to address the terrible burden of malaria throughout the world, but
1: mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. How prominent is malaria worldwide?
2: Sadly, it's still uh, incredibly prevalent. And and again, it is mostly concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa, but we're still seeing 250 million cases a year and about 600,000 deaths a year, which uh, sadly equates to a child dying just about every minute, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. So it remains a a major uh, health burden. Uh, It also has like a very intangible but real effect on economic productivity and development of poor countries in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's sort of, you know, it's a double impact of the direct effects on health, but also You know, people aren't going to school, people aren't going to work. It has a real profound impact on economies.
1: Yeah, it sounds pretty bad. So here in the U.S. we hear about the occasional West Nile virus case that mosquitoes carry, but you know, you mentioned primarily where malaria is, but do we get any of it here in the U.S.?
2: So it's been many decades since we eliminated malaria in the United States. And there are a number of countries who are proud to have eliminated malaria from their countries. But, you know, the big unknown on the horizon is the effect of climate change and really the climate change in, in the form of rising temperatures, extreme weather events uh, all of this really threatens to undo the progress we've made. So it may be uh, several, you know, years out before we need to worry here in North America about malaria reemerging. But there are other mosquito-borne diseases, as you mentioned, West Nile. But dengue uh, is a little closer to home in Latin America, and with the effects of climate change, could easily migrate the epidemic zone uh, to here here in the United States. So. What we're seeing is a lot of shifting, a shifting footprint of these mosquito-borne diseases and insect-borne diseases as a result of climate
1: change. And it's quite worrisome, actually. Okay, so I do want to talk about the climate change a little bit more. But first, when you say eliminated malaria, what is the process of eliminating the disease? (laughs)
2: Great question. We have a whole arsenal of tools that we can use to prevent and treat malaria, and largely it's a matter of implementing those uh, appropriately and consistently and staying focused on the challenge. For example, insecticide-treated bed nets are one of the most cost effective interventions in global health ever uh, at a very low cost of less than $2. You can provide a net, a bed net that protects people from being infected um, by the Anopheles mosquito, which carries malaria and bites primarily at night. And so the introduction of the insecticide treated bed net was a, it was an enormous gain in terms of reducing malaria transmission and infection. Uh, We also have really um, made major strides in vector control. So how we control the breeding locations of mosquitoes in the first place. Indoor residual spraying is a major intervention as well that inserts a larvicide and insecticide on the walls of people's domiciles that is benign to humans but will kill mosquitoes, and that has made a major strides. And a lot of it is just educating the public, educating clinicians that every fever needs to be diagnosed, and if it's malaria, it needs to be treated very promptly. So some of it is just education. But one of the major ways that countries achieve elimination is by knowing when and where outbreaks will occur. That's been true for centuries, really. Malaria is the oldest disease on the planet uh, in Mm. terms of seasonality. But now that seasonality is being a little disrupted, but that understanding the the timing and location of likely outbreaks so that you can focus interventions in those locations and then really staying with it for years. In fact, to be certified as malaria-free by the World Health Organization you need to not have had a malaria infection in your country for three years, so it's really a very, you know, um, intensive and protracted process. And countries, you know, work really hard to stay focused on that and achieve that uh, major gain to their healthcare system.
1: Can the same types of processes be used to eliminate other diseases like West Nile?
2: Absolutely. Vector control is central for everything. So once we understand the transmission patterns, which mosquitoes, for example, carry West Nile, some encephalitis, dengue, malaria, uh, we can target those mosquitoes. And in increasingly sophisticated ways, actually, there are a number of organizations that are working on genetic modifications, actually, to introduce mosquitoes that will not carry the disease, cannot transmit those diseases, and or cannot reproduce to eliminate or greatly uh, reduce the mosquito population. So some of those tactics are similar across diseases, although uh, with the West Nile virus, the biting patterns are different. So it's not just a nighttime transmission. And um, so that is really a vector control challenge. How do we reduce the population of these pathogen-carrying mosquitoes.
1: Okay, so I grew up in Ontario, Canada, so I'm very familiar with mosquitoes. We had them all the time (laughs) in the summer. And interestingly enough, the further north you went, it seemed to be more mosquitoes. So I would go camping in the summer times up in northern Ontario, and the mosquitoes were crazy up there. And you know, if I relate that back to the U.S., So now I live in Southern Nevada, Southwestern US, and it seems like the more Northern states have more mosquito activity. Like it's relatively rare down here. But when you're talking about climate change and the rising temperatures mean more mosquitoes, it kind of seems counterintuitive because I keep thinking, okay, the further North you get, the more mosquitoes you get, and yet the rising temperatures are causing more mosquitoes. So can you explain the correlation there? How? climate change is actually affecting the mosquito population? Sure. Heather,
2: I suspect that part of what you're experiencing is more the urban versus rural dynamic. So mosquitoes are more prevalent in areas that are less populated and have greater humidity levels. So it's not quite as simple as rising temperatures. It's a whole set of climatic dynamics that change that are changing with climate change and those Mm -hmm. all of those dynamics are what we use to predict uh, where the disease transmission will happen and don't forget not every mosquito is capable of carrying these pathogens. So it's one particular breed, Anopheles mosquito, that carries the malaria pathogen, for example. Dengue is carried by another mosquito. Um, West Nile is carried by a separate, a, a different type of mosquito. There are many, many types of mosquitoes. So some of it also is how suitable is the habitat for this particular kind of mosquito. And that's the kind of thing that modelers who are projecting the effects of climate change on mosquito-borne disease transmission are looking at. So it's a little bit more complicated than just rising temperatures. It's also the volatility that's introduced by climate change. So seasonality is changing. It's also the humidity levels that are different and changing. And then it is also the the change of range. But I think to answer your question again, Heather, the the correlation is more with the type of mosquito. So an anopheles mosquito thrives in a very particular kind of habitat, which is uh, growing and spreading. And so that epidemic band, as we call it, this particular latitude where anopheles mosquitoes flourish is expanding. Um, And when that happens, you know, when you go to Northern Ontario and have a great deal of mosquitoes, not many, if any of them are carrying uh, disease of any kind, but they're <laughs> a nuisance certainly. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> but yeah, certainly, but it's it's just those um, certain particular kinds of mosquitoes that are more um, hazardous to human health, and that's what the experts are are tracking more specifically.
1: Interesting. Okay, I'm learning so much about mosquitoes today. <laughs> You know, it's one of those creatures where I can't find the value in it. Like most, (laughs) most creatures on earth, it's like, okay, they're annoying for this reason, but they're beneficial for that reason. Mosquitoes, I can't find any redeeming qualities. Do you know of any? Right. Like, why do we need mosquitoes?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting question. And of course, you know, you've heard all of the the theories of how such a slight little seemingly innocuous change in nature can have a whole cascade of effects, the butterfly effect, they call it, right? Mm. Um, but m- more directly, I mean, mosquitoes are a major source of food for bats. Um, bats are an important part of, you know, the global habitat. But it, it's funny, because I, I mentioned the, uh, the gene drive initiative. So a number of different scientific approaches to changing the genetic makeup of mosquitoes, either so that they reproduce less, or that they can carry fewer diseases and pathogens. But that even that approach is quite controversial. So just a couple years ago, a company called Oxitec released its genetically modified mosquitoes in a a part of Florida, with permission, of course, from all the health authorities and the government. And it was quite controversial to the population there, who is just suspicious of any sort of genetically modified anything, right? So that's a little bit controversial, the whole you know, objections that we have to genetically modified food, for example. Um, the same applies when people are messing with the, you know, the genetics of mosquitoes. Uh, and one particular incidence is funny in India, where they introduced a, mis- a vector control initiative, meaning to reduce the reproduction of mosquitoes. And they had as a symbol, a sign of a mosquito with a line through it. And certain population groups in India that are the vegetarian and, you know, fiercely protective of all animal species, um, we're really up in arms about that. And mm. uh, we're, you know, urging the community not to demonize the mosquito and not to <laughs> reduce it, but find <laughs> other ways to address malaria, which I found is, you know, quite uh, interesting because I, I'm i like you, I don't I don't see the value. I think we could probably <laughs> do without them. And they certainly are a nuisance.
1: Yeah. So one of the places where mosquitoes do breed here in Southern Nevada is when people don't keep their pools up and, you know, they let it go green, they don't keep up with the chemicals and, and having the pool swim ready. So obviously, you know, not having a green pool is one way to prevent mosquitoes breeding. But what other tips do you have that listeners could use to help prevent more mosquitoes from being born?
2: I mean, you 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 hit the nail on the head with the standing bodies of water, but unfortunately, it doesn't need to be a pool size to enable breeding. So really, any standing water that you have, flower pots that are have water standing in them over time, those encourage breeding for mosquitoes. Of course, now in the United States, we have a lot of vector control options in terms of professionals that will come and spray for mosquitoes, and they're using increasingly Products that are not harmful to uh, humans and pets, and so mm-hmm. spraying is, of course, an uh, an option that has been increasing in efficacy pretty consistently over the years. So that's a really good option now. So standing water and spraying, if that's an option where you are, is important. I mentioned. You know, that one of the ways that we're uh, addressing the malaria problem where it's most poignant in sub-Saharan Africa is by increasingly sophisticated means of early warning systems. And that actually applies even to the pools and the small bodies of water. Um, There's a company now that uses artificial intelligence to determine the location of small reservoirs where Anopheles mosquitoes can breed and then sends, you know, trained workers to apply the larvicide in those locations. And so we're seeing artificial intelligence becoming increasingly useful in the early prediction of outbreaks so that we can get in and predict those outbreaks before they happen. you know, again, as climate change introduces the possibility that malaria, dengue, and other mosquito-borne disease will, you know, re-emerge in the United States, those are the kind of tools that we might have to employ here as well. But for now, we're, we're really, you know, saving lives um, by doing that in malaria-endemic countries where the burden
1: is so high. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about the Forecasting Healthy Futures Initiative.
2: So Forecasting Healthy Futures um, is it's an initiative that combines expertise in public health, technology, and uh, artificial intelligence in particular, and is working to support technologies, new technologies and advances that will address the intersection of climate change and health. So we've been talking as a global community for some time about climate change's impact on human health. But what there hasn't been is enough sort of concerted efforts to come up with proactive, positive global health solutions in that context of climate change. So what Forecasting Healthy Futures tries tries to do is move beyond the forecasting, the, the prognosticating about the impact of climate change on human health, and to create real tools in response. Um, so the adaptation side of the climate change equation. So we're beginning with malaria, of course. Um, we, last year, we launched the Institute for Malaria and Climate Solutions, which supports, as I said, Uh, a whole network of researchers that are creating these increasingly sophisticated early warning systems to address the volatility introduced by climate change and understand where malaria outbreaks are likely to happen so that we can respond quicker. Um, But that IMAX, that's the abbreviation, um, Mm -hmm. supports a whole global network of these experts. Forecasting Healthy Futures is the umbrella organization that tries to shine a light on these new technology advances and increase the global investment in these types of solutions and just continue to advocate for policies that support them. So in some cases, for example, countries need to adopt new policies that will allow, that will unlock resources to respond to these outbreak predictions. Whereas in the past, these resources perhaps has only been released once there was a malaria outbreak. So we're trying to get a lot more proactive about sending resources uh, where they're needed before, before they're needed, I guess.
1: Okay. So if listeners want to find out more information about Malaria No More and your various initiatives, where can they go? Please
2: visit our website at malarianomore.org and forecastinghealthyfutures.org as well. Both have uh, a lot of uh, recent publications and sources of information and an ongoing stream of uh, inf- you know, new findings from the research that we're conducting and that our network of experts around the world are conducting. Um, there's also, of course, an opportunity to contribute financially to these initiatives, which are really saving lives uh, in, in a profound way around the world.
1: Do you have volunteer opportunities as well?
2: We can certainly arrange for volunteer opportunities. Malaria No More is primarily an advocacy organization and that means that volunteering is as simple sometimes as spreading information about malaria, the 600,000 people, it kills every year, the efforts of the United States government to respond to that crisis and to encourage your congressmen and representatives to continue and in, to invest in those important programs. This year, the United States is hosting the replenishment of the fund, the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, which is the single largest uh, multi-country fund and private sector fund to respond to those terrible epidemics. The United States is hosting that replenishment, meaning it's committing its largest uh, sum of money ever. We would like all Americans to support that initiative because it is... The single most effective global health intervention to save lives that really the world has ever accomplished. And it's a really seriously important initiative that um, we would love our volunteers to help support.
1: Nice. Okay. So once again, malaria no org and forecastinghealthyfutures.org if you want to find out more about the initiatives that are taking place to eliminate malaria throughout the world, if you want to find out more information about how serious the problem is, where it is, all of that kind of stuff. If you want to make a donation or find out about volunteer opportunities, all of that is there as well. So malarianomore.org and forecastinghealthyfutures.org. And Kelly, I want to thank you so much for being here today and educating us more on mosquitoes, first of all, but also, (laughs) you know, the deadly diseases and, and where it is and why it's rising and why it's an issue and what people can do about it. So thanks again for your time. Thank you so much,
2: Heather. It's really been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Infectious diseases spread by pests like malaria, Zika and Chagas disease are causing a worldwide health crisis. Fortunately, here at home, we don't face the same level of threat, but we shouldn't let our guard down. Mosquito-borne diseases like West Nile virus and Zika are impacting communities across the U.S., and Lyme disease spread by ticks is on the rise. Whether around the world or just around the block, get the facts you need to protect your family at PestWorld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association.
3: Once upon a time, our family had trouble with pests around our home. Did you know that stingy insects send tons of people to the hospital? And teeny ticks and mosquitoes can be all around the yard. Their bites can make people and their pets sick. Mice, rats, and roaches need food and water just like us. You do not want them to visit. They can spread disease and make it hard to breathe.
1: I'm sure glad this story has a happy ending.
0: Learn how to protect your family at pestworld.org.
2: A public service message from the National Pest Management Association.
1: You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and today I'm speaking with Leanne Adams, Senior Vice President of National Initiatives for NeighborWorks America. NeighborWorks America has been striving to make every community equitable with affordable homeownership and rental opportunities for almost 45 years. They offer a range of resources, including grant funding, counseling, and training. Leanne has more than 20 years of experience working with community development organizations on the design, implementation, and evaluation of community-based economic development in the U.S. and Latin America. She's also worked for the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, the World Bank, the Futures Group International, and the U.S. Peace Corps. Leanne, thank you so much for being here today.
3: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you to talk about our survey findings and some critical issues facing our communities when it comes to homeownership and financial stability.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a pressing issue right now. Let's take a few steps back first to give a foundation. When exactly was NeighborWorks started and what was the purpose back then?
3: Yeah, we were created in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, we were, were actually a congressionally chartered organization and our roots are really in um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, actually in a local community there where a leader named uh, Dorothy Richardson brought together, she was seeing disinvestment in her neighborhood. And so she brought together public partners, local banks and community residents to really revitalize that neighborhood. And from that was really the foundation of what became NeighborWorks America. And so we work nationally now with a network of organizations around the country, about 250 organizations that are doing that same work. They're investing in their communities, whether they're urban, rural, suburban, native communities to really bring investment and create opportunities for people that are living there.
1: Okay. When you say bring investment, what exactly are the kinds of resources and services that you're offering to potential homeowners?
3: Yeah, we offer our organizations. So, we, we look to bring investment into those communities through these organizations. So, it can be creating new homes, affordable homes, whether those are rental homes or for home ownership, investing in down payment assistance, financial coaching, housing counseling to help people achieve the path to home ownership. In some cases, they're working comprehensively in their communities and investing in, you know, needed resources for those communities, whether it be uh, a new grocery store or a community facility or a recreation center. So it really varies across the country, but it's all about strengthening those communities, creating opportunities for people to live there and to thrive and to be engaged.
1: Okay. Now, you mentioned a recent survey. In that survey, what have you found out about prospective homeowners?
3: Yeah, so, you know, we did find in this recent survey that there are still racial disparities, we know this, that exist in home ownership. But we did see that there is some hope that their people are still looking towards home ownership, but the process is too, is too complicated. The survey revealed that 70% of Americans still believe the home buying process is too difficult and they need help. And some of the big factors that are, are keeping people the barriers for pursuing home ownership are credit and their overall financial standing. Do they have savings? Uh, you know, is that credit good? Can they can they really start this path towards homeownership? You know, and, and a majority, 64% of Americans, believe that banks may not approve them for homeownership. So there's still some doubt that they can even qualify to be a homeowner. But again, a majority believe that owning a home uh, now seems more important than it did in 2019.
1: Okay, so these doubts and concerns about it being too difficult, or maybe I don't have the credit, or maybe I don't have the financial standing, maybe the banks won't approve me. Are these concerns that are based in reality? Or is it simply fears that are getting in the way of them moving forward?
3: There's, there's some reality to these barriers, for sure, and there is uh, there are challenges working through traditional financial institutions for many low-income folks who may have bad credit or, or a credit history that, you know, it is challenging. That is a real barrier, but, you know, you can work with an organization like a NeighborWorks organization or another local housing organization to, you know, build that credit, understand the process, find a mortgage that is affordable and sustainable, that's in your own interest, that you can you can remain stably housed in that home. Um, And so that's why we really advocate for people to connect with that local housing counseling organization and start that path. A counselor or a financial coach can meet you wherever you are. So if you're a renter and you need to build credit, there are tools that help you to do that. If you want to repair your credit or build savings, a financial coach can help you do that. So really seeking that support from a trusted partner in the community is a good way to start the process. Don't wait until you You know, you just start the process and then and then someone can kind of guide you and advise you along the way and help you and help you achieve that dream. And you just you have to keep at it.
1: You mentioned racial disparity. How are people of different ethnicities impacted in different ways when we're talking about affordable housing?
3: Yeah. I mean, one of the the biggest things that's still real is there's a 30% gap between the black homeownership rate and the white homeownership rate now. And in fact, the black Mm -hmm. homeownership rate is lower than it was 10 years ago. And so these things like the credit box, uh, access to credit, you know, how, how we underwrite different people and their experience, these are all real challenges. And so... You know, having having local partners in the community is really important to help uh, to help folks achieve homeownership if that is what they want to do. And I'd say, like, it's important for that building generational wealth. Uh, homeownership remains one of the most important ways to build generational wealth over time.
1: Okay, so one thing I noticed locally in Las Vegas is over the past few years, housing prices went up astronomically, which pretty much priced a lot of people out of the market. And yet, on the flip side, at the same time, the interest rates were relatively low. Uh Well, now the interest rates are starting to go up. They've already been raised and probably will go up a few more times. Does that make this situation worse or will the housing prices come down to balance that out?
3: Yeah, I don't, I don't know if the, I think it will, the rates will slow uh, the sales perhaps, but they, um, I, you know, there might be some markets where housing prices get a little softer or decline or level out, but I don't think we're going to see what we saw 10 years ago where we saw, you know, particularly in communities like, like Las Vegas, where there was a big decline in the housing value. But you know, I think what we're seeing is, you know, even at the national and federal level, an understanding of the importance of investing in tools that help affordable homeowners. So down payment assistance is really important. And you see many of the banks offering new kinds of assistance there, but also federal programs launching, state housing finance agencies launching those programs, and local organizations like neighborworks organizations offering those. So, you know, working with someone who can help you identify the resources you qualify for and layer those uh, can help also our organizations build affordable housing. So working through a nonprofit builder or a nonprofit organization that is specifically looking to help people of color or low income people achieve home ownership can be a good route to go.
1: So generally speaking, do you think the situation is getting better? Like, is the future bright for someone who wants to be a homeowner or is it getting worse?
3: It's hard. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, it's still hard. I think it's always been hard. If you look at the rates, I mean, I can't, I can't say if, you know, there, there's, there's a 30% gap, then if we want to really close that gap, then we have to put invest in some real resources to help people. And so I think it's not a time to walk away from the dream of being a homeowner. It is still, again, one of the most important ways to build that generational wealth. And so, you know, you may not be able to get there in a week, but you could get there maybe in a year or two years. So starting the process and really, you know, not not discounting it from the get-go, but really thinking about and working with a local uh, trusted advisor, a counselor, or another agency that can help you navigate the process. I mean, that is what our survey found that, People really want to seek out that guidance so that they can navigate the process and and eventually become a homeowner.
1: Okay, so I'm sure there's people listening that are interested. You've mentioned working with local nonprofits, working with a counselor, working with an advisor, but let's put it into concrete terms. How exactly would someone go forward with that process if they're interested in seeking out those services and resources and tools?
3: Yeah. So there in uh, Las Vegas area, there are two organizations: the Neighborhood Housing Services of Southern Nevada, and then Nevada Hand is also located there in um, in Nevada. And so those organizations are are two local partner organizations that work with community members, both on financial uh, capability or coaching, but also you know affordable rental and housing counseling, and so they can, they can work with folks in the community who are interested in home ownership or, again, just interested in improving their financial position and building better credit. And then, of course, uh, if others are listening, you can go to our website, which is NeighborWorks.org, and you can find more information and resources there.
1: Would NeighborWorks.org steer them towards those other organizations, the Neighborhood Housing Services and Nevada Hand, or should they go to those organizations directly?
3: Oh, they could go to those organizations directly, or there is a link on our website um, where you can look up our network and find organizations
1: in your community. Okay, fantastic. So once again, NeighborWorks.org, NeighborWorks.org. And you can find all the information about resources and services that are available to help you get into that dream of home ownership and the organizations that they're working with here locally, Neighborhood Housing Services of Southern Nevada, and also Nevada Hand, two great organizations in the Valley. But you can find all of that directly at NeighborWorks.org. Leanne, thank you so much for being here and helping people understand what the situation is and what they can do to move forward and make their dream come true. I appreciate your time.
3: No, I thank you. Have a great day.
1: I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't
3: prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there.
2: These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with
0: barriers. Those really are the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. How had to drag my wheelchair down steps.
1: I want to help, but he is so determined.
0: At
2: Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function
0: independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning.
3: This house has given me my family back.
2: To learn more, visit hfotusa.org.
1: I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the Valley. Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi monthly musical fundraising party at the space, with each event raising $10,000 for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include this Monday, August 8th at 8pm, benefiting the Muscular Dystrophy Association's Fill the Boot campaign, Monday, August 22nd at 8pm, benefiting Aiden's Army of Angels, and Monday, September 12th at 8pm, benefiting the Serving Our Kids Foundation. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. Black Pearl Promotions is celebrating local nonprofits with the Nevada Nonprofit Awareness Day Community Event on Wednesday, August 17th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Sahara West Library. That's 9600 West Sahara Avenue, west of Fort Apache. Enjoy entertainment as you meet and greet with local nonprofits for free, and nonprofits also get access to a pre-event seminar on building their organizations. Register for free as a nonprofit exhibitor or an attendee at BlackPearlPromotions.com. Lace up your bowling shoes for the Bowl for the Gold fundraiser to support Special Olympics Nevada. The games are happening on Saturday, August 20th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Strike Zone Bowling Center at Sunset Station. Registration includes three games of bowling, food, and non-alcoholic beverages. SONV athletes will be on hand to play with each team. You can register as an individual for $55 or a team of four for 220 This event always sells out, so register now at sonv.org. SONV for Special Olympics Nevada. Again, that's SONV.org. Junior Achievement of Southern Nevada is also hosting a bowling fundraiser. The JA Buathon takes place on Saturday, october fifteenth and Sunday, october sixteenth at eight thirty AM at the Santa Fe Bowling Center. Join a team and bowl in the fast lane. Get all the details at JASNV.org. That's JASNV.org. Black Pearl Promotions is hosting a Bring Back the 70s disco fundraising event to support Domestic Violence Awareness Month and Breast Cancer Awareness Month on Friday, October 28th from 8 p.m. till midnight. It's happening at Starbase LV on West Diablo Drive near Allegiant Stadium. Get all the details and buy your tickets at blackpearlpromotions.com. Clark County officials and the October 1 Memorial Committee are looking for ideas and proposals for a memorial project to honor victims of the October 1, 2017 mass shooting at the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas. This is the start of an 18-month process and you have until September 30th to submit your ideas. There are other ways to get involved in the process and share your expertise as well. Find out all the details and submission requirements at clarkcountynvgovernor one Memorial. That's clarkcountynv.gov/the number 1 october memorial.